our theory is if we want to disrupt um, industrial animal agriculture and you know get people reducing their meat consumption down to maybe 20 kilograms a year rather than 110 kilograms a year, we need to beat meat on taste and texture and price. That's Michael Fox, one of the co-founders of Shoes of Prey and Fable, and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Blackbird is based across Australia and New Zealand, and we were founded in 2012 with a single mission, to supercharge the most ambitious founders. What does the personalization of shoes and plant-based meats have in common? Apparently a lot, as we'll learn from the serial founder, Michael Fox. Michael Fox was a co-founder of Shoes of Prey. The business raised 30 million, hired hundreds of employees, and was on a tear to give shoe lovers the chance to design their own shoes. In 2018, the business shut its doors. Shoes of Prey was hugely ambitious, and Michael and his co-founders, Jody and Mike, were so close to pulling it off. While working on Shoes of Prey as the co-founder and CEO, Michael read a book that would change his eating habits forever, and unbeknownst to him, set him on the course of his next startup fable. The team at Blackbird are absolutely thrilled Michael dared to go again on another startup. In this episode, we'll hear from Michael on how this discovery turned into co-founding Fable, a plant-based meats company that uses mushrooms to create alternative protein like braised beef. We'll hear about the magical properties of mushrooms and what lessons he's leaning on from his Shoes of Prey journey. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Blackbird's partner, Rick Baker, to find out what stood out during Fable's pitch, what's defensive about Fable's business model, and why we're excited to be working with Fable. And as a bonus, we've invited Michael's co-founder, Jim Fuller, to share his favorite Fable recipe and go-to mushrooms. But let me warn you, this bonus section is going to leave you hungry. It's no wonder Heston Blumenthal describes Fable's braised beef as a delicious, versatile, and natural slow-cooked meat alternative. If you're listening from Australia, you can pick up Fable at your local Woolworths, and I'll leave the link in the show notes. Let's jump into the episode with Michael Fox, co-founder of Fable. First of all, thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to kick it off by figuring out why you went from the personalization of shoes to a plant-based, mushroom-based protein. (laughs) It's an obvious jump, isn't it, Mason? (laughs) (laughs) It's copy and paste. (laughs) Um, No, thanks for having me on, Mason. Good to chat to you. I went vegetarian um, four and a half years ago now, so while I was doing Shoes of Prey. um, It was just a personal personal thing. I sort of yeah, read up more on, um, on industrial animal agriculture and different things. Actually, there was a book uh, called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer that kind of tipped me over the edge to going vegetarian. Um, so anyway, that was just a personal thing because I was, I was doing Shoes of Prey full time. So it wasn't anything more than changing my own eating habits. Um, but then when, uh, when I finished up with Shoes of Prey, um, I took six months off, um, needed a bit of a break after, after that roller coaster ride. And um, uh, my wife's Danish, so we went over to Denmark. Uh, yeah, had six months oh, off. Um, had our second child was born over there. Um, so I spent a lot of time with the kids, but also just ended up reading um, a lot about kind of whatever, wherever my intellectual curiosity went. And it went in a few, in a few different directions, but one of those directions was um, animal agriculture and alternative proteins. And as I read more about it, I just got more passionate about the idea of helping to contribute to ending it. 
Um, and I'd been eating all of the alternative proteins um, in LA when I was living there with Shoes of Prey, then eating all the, all the uh, European ones when I was living in Denmark. Um, and yeah, just got, got yeah, wanted to help contribute to ending industrial animal agriculture. Um, thinking through the best ways I could do that um, in being vegetarian at that point for about three years, um, I talked to lots of people around me and tried to convince other people to turn vegetarian. And I think I'd convinced like two people <laughs> and uh, I caught up with one of them the other day and he's not even vegetarian anymore. So I'm a pretty rubbish activist. So, but figured maybe I could apply my entrepreneurial experience and uh, go into the alternative protein space. What were some of the key takeaways around your activism what were the, the key selling points? Well, the thing, the big thing I learned out of it was people, people get the, you know, get the, you know, the, the main reasons to not eat, um, not eat meat. Uh, there's kind of ethical, uh, environmental health, and even like preventing pandemics. Um, those are kind of the four main, uh, four main reasons to reduce meat consumption. Um, and people get those reasons, um, but. They love the taste and texture of meat and I mean I, I get it too like it was difficult going vegetarian and so yeah I get, I get why people find that hard if you could produce an alternative protein uh, yeah, that mimics the taste and texture of meat at a price that's equivalent to meat um, and make it plant-based so it has all those other benefits then people would a decent part of the market would want to switch to that I'd love for you to unpack the mission of fable what really drew you to starting a mushroom uh, company. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so uh, yeah, I guess going through each of those kind of four main areas of yeah, why we should reduce our meat consumption. Firstly, health. Um, there's a bunch of really good academic data um, that says, uh, firstly, processed meats are carcinogenic. Um, red meat is, is very likely a carcinogen. Um, the World Health Organization's um, sort of got, got, a, got a statement and a bunch of information stating that, and there's a whole bunch of academic literature behind that. Um, and we basically, we eat far too much meat in the West. In Australia, we eat 110 kilograms of meat per person per year. That, that doesn't uh -huh. even include fish. And it, it's literally killing us, like you know, heart, heart disease, obesity, bowel cancer. If you eat a plant-based diet, you literally don't get bowel cancer. It is like, it is linked to meat consumption. So there's a whole bunch of good health reasons why we should either either eliminate or at least drastically reduce our meat consumption. Um, secondly, environmental reasons. Um, Before you jump onto the environmental, with the, yeah. with the health case, is there a guidance yet around how much is too much? You mentioned 110. It sounds like it's, it's certainly on the side of too much. Do you have any guidance or, or idea? And maybe not, but I just thought I'd ask. Uh, I mean, there's, there is a bunch of data that says you shouldn't, you don't, we don't need to eat meat. Like you can, you can get a, you can have a healthier diet eating a fully plant-based diet. Um, uh, there's a, um, an author, Michael Greger, he's a doctor and um, scientist. Um, and he's got a yeah, bunch of good information um, online. He kind of collates all of the academic literature that's coming out, that comes out around um, food consumption. Yeah, the very clear conclusion, if uh, you read all of that, is that we shouldn't really be eating any meat. But there's probably, you know, there's, you know, moderation is kind of what, how we should think about most things. And so there's probably a case for, I haven't seen data on this, but there might be a case for, you know, eating 10 or 20 kilograms of meat per year. Um, there might be a case for that from a health perspective that that's okay, but certainly 110 kilos. And I'm not eating any, so uh, other people must be eating a little bit more than that yeah, too. Well. To get the average up there. 
<laughs> so you were saying on, on the environment? 13.5% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from industrial an- or come from animal agriculture. And that's a yeah, combination of um, the, the, yeah, all the transport and logistics for, for sending um, food around. You know, if you've got um, animals in a factory farm, you've got to grow the crops to feed those animals. And this all happens, at, you know, growing the crops happens at a different location to where the factory farms are. And so you've got all the supply chain. But actually, the, the even bigger part uh, of, of the, those carbon emissions is uh, methane emissions from cows. So cows, when they're digesting food, um, burp methane. Um, and cows burping methane is about 6 or 7% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. 13.5% of greenhouse, global greenhouse gas emissions are caused by animal agriculture. And wow. that's more than all of transport combined. So we could electrify all the cars, planes, ships in the world, and that wouldn't have as much of an impact as if we stopped eating meat. 47% of the world's habitable landmass is devoted to animal agriculture. That's a um, UN uh, Department of Agriculture figure. So it's a combination of two two main things. So firstly, um, grazed animals um, need a huge amount of land to produce a relatively small amount of food. Um, and so yeah, a lot of the world's habitable landmass has they, animals grazing on it. Yeah, pigs, like cows uh, in particular. Actually, most of the world's meat uh, comes from factory farms rather than grazed animals. It's more, more than half now. Um, and those factory farmed animals need to be fed crops, which need to be grown. And this blew my mind, more than half of the world's crops that are grown aren't fed to humans, they're fed to animals to then be fed to humans. And the reason we have to grow so many crops to feed animals is because animals have a terrible uh, feed to food conversion ratio. So take a pig, for example, Um, got to feed a pig eight kilograms of plant matter to produce one kilogram of meat. Um, so you've got this, got this terrible, terrible ratio. Cows, it's about 12 to 1. Chickens wow. are a bit better at around 3 or 4 to 1. Um, but still, all of those ratios are terrible. The energy required for that. Yeah, exactly. And that's why then the carbon emissions are so high from it all. So if we stopped eating meat, you could, there's a, there's a really good report called the Rethink X report, um, which is, goes into the future of food. And, and one of the um, amazing pieces of work that they did around that, they looked at, they looked at just North America and they said, uh, basically, if you eliminated um, animal agriculture out of North America, you could reforest 30% of the North American landmass. The carbon emissions that you would capture doing that would make uh, North America carbon neutral without even having to reduce any of the existing emissions. Um, so, yeah, huge environmental and sustainability issues around eating meat um, that, that we could solve if we, if we stopped eating meat. Third, uh, third area is um, ethics, um, and this is a little bit harder and, and more difficult to describe, but, I mean, the way, the way animals are treated, in, uh, particularly in factory farms, is nothing short of apparent. Probably the, the piece of logic that got me most was thinking about how we treat different animals in our society. So, you know, in Australia, um, a lot of us have pet dogs or cats and, you know, we would do anything for our pet dog or cat. We, you know, we go, a lot of us go spend thousands of dollars at the vet to, you know, help, help our pet dog or cat. Pigs are just as intelligent and actually there's even data showing that they're more intelligent than dogs. Um, they, can, they, you know, can interact with humans. They can be cute and cuddly, but we treat pigs apparently. We put them in factory farms, they stay in little tiny spaces. We rip their babies away from the mothers um, at, at a crazy young age. The, the mother pigs are in a 
forced into a cage where they can't even turn around so that they don't crush their uh, their children when they're born. And, and then the way that they, they're killed is, uh, is really cruel. There's, there's a really good documentary. Well, it's really good. It's, it's horrific, um, but it's called uh, Dominion. Um, so if anyone wants to go and um, see more about the ethical treatment of animals, that's a good one to go watch. And what blew my mind about that documentary um, was I, I thought until I watched that, I thought, okay, factory farming's cruel, but, you know, in Australia, you know, we've probably got it pretty good here. It's, you know, it can't be that bad. Um, but this Dominion documentary is um, Australian footage. Uh, it's a couple of activists who over a period of about six or seven years, they went and like got jobs in factory farms and different things so that they could get undercover footage in Australian um, How many years did they do factory for? farms. It's like six or seven years worth wow. of collecting wow. just two hours of footage. I mean, it, it is shocking. Uh, yeah, I had to watch it in stints because I couldn't handle watching it. Those three reasons are just—it's just crazy. As society has kind of lost the plot in how we, um, <laughs> how we, how we treat in our industrial uh, agri- animal agriculture system, and then actually the fourth reason is pandemics. So, sixty percent of the viruses and bacteria that infect humans um, come from animals, uh, and the most prominent reason where they kind of evolve in animals and jump to humans, or the most prominent way that happens, is when you've got large groups of the same species of animal. So factory farms, um, so, you know, bird flu, which was, you know, got pretty scary in, uh, in Asia about 10 years ago, that came from chicken factory farms. You've got a whole bunch of chickens in a small confined space. Um, it's just a, a breeding ground for viruses and bacteria, you know, that they have to feed chickens antibiotics in their feed because otherwise they, they die in, in many factory farms because the conditions are so bad. So we're also making um, our antibiotics, uh, you know, resistant to a lot of, a lot of different things. I think about two, thir- two thirds of the antibiotics consumed in North America are consumed by factory farmed animals rather wow. than humans. You know, coronavirus, there's still investigations happening on where that came from, but the current sort of most prominent theory is that it evolved in, um, in bats in a, in a wet market in China. So a lot of bats confined in a small unhygienic space, viruses evolve, and then you've got lots of humans around them. Eventually one of those viruses will jump to humans. If we keep doing intensive animal farming, it's only a matter of time before a virus jumps from, evolves in animals, jumps to humans, and has, a, has an even higher um, transmission rate and mortality rate than, than what the coronavirus has had. Um, so, yeah, all this disruption to the economy that we're having now with uh, the coronavirus, like there's huge, huge societal costs to our, um, our industrial animal agriculture system. As you put it, society has lost the plot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> might be a what bit you- harsh, but in, but, <laughs> but, uh, but in relation to uh, how we treat uh, animal uh, agriculture, yeah. yes. <laughs> and I just wanted to get your take on like ten, 10 years from now when the plot is in our hands, <laughs> if you will, what does what that world look like with Fable in it? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think like, so, so going back to, you know, when I was first gone vegetarian, I'm trying to talk, talk to all the people around me about these issues and encourage them to turn vegetarian. You know, people get it and uh, want to reduce their meat consumption, but, you know, we've evolved eating meat. So it's like built in us to, to love that taste and texture. Mm. You know, I grew up in Queensland eating, eating steak and, uh, and beef mints almost every night for dinner. And yeah, I, I, you know, I still find myself craving that or I walk past a cafe that's serving bacon and egg rolls and smell the bacon and, and you know, yeah, yeah there's the, that's like in building. Clearly, yeah, yeah, it's like clearly built <laughs> built into us. If you think about the value proposition for a, con- a customer buying, this applies to any food, but we'll talk specifically to meat. People want the 
taste and texture of meat, like that's far and away number one. A very close second is price. Food is a very price elastic category. A small difference in price will lead to a big difference in the amount of the product people will will consume. And then really, you know, if you look at meat as a whole, it's a far, far, far distant third, the fact that it's plant-based. Um, uh, you know, some people who care and want to reduce their, their meat consumption and care about it being plant-based, but for most people, the value proposition for buying meat is number one, taste and texture, number two, price. Our theory is if we want to disrupt um, industrial animal agriculture and, you know, get people reducing their meat consumption down to maybe 20 kilograms a year rather than 110 kilograms a year, we need to beat meat on taste and texture and price. Fast forward 10 years, uh, I'm confident we'll have products in a number of meat categories that have better taste and texture than their animal equivalents. You know, the, the cow and the pig, unless you're going to genetically modify them, you're not going to be able to, you can't change the taste of that meat any further. You know, we've done, done lots of that with breeding and feeding, feeding animals different things already. It's, it's pretty hard to keep iterating on that. Um, so we want to have taste and texture that's, that you crave uh, even more than you crave um, the, the, the equivalents coming from animals. And then on price, uh, it's going to be pretty easy for us to, um, at scale, to sell at a price lower than animal meat. Animal meat is actually not, not it's very inefficient to produce. Um, and so uh, we've just launched our first product into Woolworths, and it's Ooh. a, it's a um, slow-braised uh, beef uh, made from predominantly shiitake mushrooms. Um, and our pricing strategy is, so Woolworths have a 250-gram pack of pulled beef that they retail for $8.50. Um, and we've gone in exact same pack size, 250 grams, exact same price point, $8.50. Mm. So, you know, six months after we've launched our business, we're already matching the animal meat equivalent in price, um, you know, without a lot of scale. Um, as soon as we get some scale, um, we're going to be able to um, beat meat on price. You're talking about at scale, it's going to be a lot cheaper. What are some of the inputs that you've been able to remove? Obviously, in mushrooms, you'll, you'll still need quite a bit of land. Um, uh, can you break down where the efficiencies actually kick in? Yeah, well, I mean, it's basically like we grow mushrooms. Um, we have a, a basically a one-to-one -one conversion ratio on that, um, that in our case, fung fun fungi um, or, or plant matter. Our product's 62% shiitake mushrooms, 38% um, plants. We have basically almost a one-to-one -one conversion ratio. There's really not much wastage on any of those plant or mushroom products. Straight off the bat, replicate uh, competing against pulled beef, where there's a 12 to one feed to um, output ratio, we're already 12 times more efficient um, just there. That's by far the biggest area of gain for us. And then on the pricing part, do you see uh, Fable dropping their price by 12 times or how do you see that playing out, especially in the eye of the consumer? Does Is price reflective of quality and, and how do you think about that now? So one of the things that the um, animal meat industry has got going for it is it's huge like and and the scale has led to incredible levels of, of efficiency. Animal meat is more than a trillion dollar industry globally. It's it's 8% of global GDP and the scale that it operates, like the amount of just the amount of meat that we all consume uh, means that every element of the supply chain has been like hyper optimized um, with really tight margins. So even just at the top level in supermarkets, because of the high turnover of um, beef mints, for example, retailers, actually even on beef mints, some retailers sell it at a loss because it's a kind of it's a dry, it's a product that people will come into the supermarket when they see that it's on special. But on average, the supermarkets might make sort of 15, 20% gross margins on beef mints versus in our category, um, 
it's kind of 40 to 50% gross margins because we don't have the kind of stock turns on the shelf. So supermarkets, when they're, when they're developing their gross margins, they're focused on um, gross profit dollars per piece of shelf space. Um, that's kind of one of their key measures. And so because beef mints has got high sales volume and incredible turn that Woolies will take, and Coles will take a lower gross margin there. So as we scale, supermarket margins are going to come down, for example, and, and, and then you've got the equivalent through the entire supply chain. It's theoretically possible that we become 12 times cheaper than, than animal meat. You know, for that to happen, there needs to be lots of competition even within the, the plant-based meat category. So, so it's, um, you know, driving prices, prices down. Even if we're 20 or 30% cheaper than meat, um, with the same taste and texture as meat, even that's just going to drive most or a lot, of, at least a lot of the volume over to um, plant-based products. I'd love for you to sort of break down some of the ways in which you're building your supply chain, and perhaps highlight any any learnings from Shoes of Prey that you can quickly take from there and then onto Fable. Probably the biggest learning for me um, was uh, from Shoes of Prey and applying to, to Fable was kind of speed to market and like the importance of just getting a product out, getting a a really good product out into market so that you can start getting um, consumer feedback and then go back and fully optimize your supply chain. When I started looking around for manufacturers, once we kind of had a base base product developed, started looking in Australia was kind of the obvious place, but pretty quickly realized that uh, in Australia, we eat 2.3 kilograms of mushrooms per person per year, whereas in Asia, they eat 13.5 kilograms of mushrooms per person per year. In in Asia, they actually eat 20 kilograms of meat per person per year too. So they've they've probably got a much, they've got a much better balance (laughs) than we do. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. So because there's so few mushrooms consumed in Australia, there's the the mushroom industry in, in Australia's small population wise too, the mushroom industry in Australia is, you know, much, much smaller than it is in Asia. Um, and that extends from, from the farming of mushrooms through to processing, manufacturing, knowledge, experience, skills um, in working with mushrooms. So it was clear pretty much off the bat that um, trying to produce the product in Australia, it's like it's totally possible and, and we're working on it now. But it was going to be a much slower path to path to market, and that was the same with manufacturing shoes. It was it's even more extreme in shoes. There's basically no shoe factories in Australia, so starting Shoes of Prey had to go straight to Asia to do that too. So, um, so yeah, with Fable, um, so I started looking around. Okay, Asia's the the world, the sort of capital of the world in terms of mushroom uh, production and and processing and knowledge and understanding. So you know, what are the best countries in Asia for this? Um, and then yeah, ended up talking to talking to some factories in Malaysia that already had some experience in mushrooms, had some of the right people, some of the right equipment. One of the challenges of in Asian manufacturing is quality mm. and for food, even more important than it is for shoes. Um, so I spent a lot of time, most of the factories I talked to, um, I, I wouldn't, want, wouldn't have wanted to eat food um, produced by them, uh, let alone produce my first product there. That's most of them, but there are some really good ones. Um, and so I ended up finding a couple of really good ones. Um, I brought a uh, a uh, food scientist um, uh, and food safety auditor from Australia out um, okay. to, to spend a week in Malaysia. To, these factories have got all of the right global safety certifications, but I also just wanted to get someone in Australia who's had a lot of experience in food manufacturing to, to check all that for me. And yeah, the factory that we're working with is, is great. Um, so yeah, speed to market. It was easier to go to where the global hub is for um, the kinds of kinds of things that we're doing. So you import the shiitake mushrooms from, is it Malaysia? Uh, and then the second step is to put them into a development kitchen. Can you run us through the next step 
in the supply chain. So we do all our development. Uh, we've got our development kitchen in Melbourne. Um, and actually, it's my co-founder, Jim's uh, garage. Jim's got, got a fairly big house. Let's convert his two-car garage into our development kitchen. And then everything went into lockdown. And it was perfect. He was <laughs> a mad scientist in, a, in his home lab, uh, going nuts, developing all these uh, creative things. We sourced the mushroom the, the shiitake mushrooms uh, in Asia, um, they get shipped to Malaysia, um, which is where our co-manufacturing partner is. Um, then they produce the product for us, package it, um, so it's basically good to go into food service and retail, and then we ship it over in, in containers from Malaysia to, to Australia. And so at Shizu Pro, you started with one supplier and then made the decision to move to multiple. Why did you decide to do that at that time and, and what were some of the challenges and any sort of lessons that we can share now for other founders? Yeah, so the, yeah, so the journey with manufacturing for Shoes of Prey, we started with one supplier. Um, then we had a couple of suppliers. So a few, again, a few of those kind of small factories that were already doing uh, custom women's shoes. Uh, and, and then I think we, we, for a little bit, we even worked with a factory that was using their kind of sample line to produce for us. So we had a couple of different suppliers at that point, but none of them really had the willingness or the capability to scale. Um, so we actually then went and built our own shoe factory um, in China. So, uh, yeah, we hired all the technical people that we needed, literally leased an empty building, um, bought all the equipment, and you know, it was a five-year process this wasn't easy but then yeah set up the factory to and got better and better at making custom women's shoes you know working on how do we get the unit cost down how do we speed up the lead times how do we make it all more more efficient for fable uh, it's a little bit different we've kind of started out similarly um, as i've described um, we're open to the idea of in the future doing our own manufacturing but um, the manufacturing of our products at least on a so on a scale of complexity, shoes of prey, custom women's shoes is very manufacturing is you know very complex. You know it's not building rockets or or something like someone like SpaceX is doing. That's that's yeah. much much higher, but but it's still it's still reasonably far along the complexity scale. Um, whereas a big actually a big part of our thesis around our products is we want them to be as minimally processed and whole food based as possible. So a big part of our development process is to make you know try to minimize the processing as much as we can so our products are actually simpler to produce um, and so we're pretty confident at this stage that we're going to be able to work with existing um, manufacturers food manufacturers and uh, they're going to be able to scale the production for us how do you think about the trade-off with product control the less that you sort of own at the beginning and, and maybe that's the benefit of shoes of prey that while everything comes in-house and it's vertically integrated it's obviously a lot more expensive and, and hard. Uh, how, how, do you, how, how do you sit comfortably with that trade-off? So I think, um, I mean, I think in, in any business you should like try to have, yeah, have, work out what your core competencies are and, and where those core competencies are differentiated in the market. So for Fable, um, we think about our core competencies as product development, so developing the base products. Um, and over time, we want to develop a whole range of different mushroom-based, you know, whole food, all-natural mushroom-based meat alternatives. Um, and so we want to we want to get very good at that uh, at that development. And <clears throat> having someone like Jim as a as a co-founder, who's a chef and mushroom scientist, we actually don't even know of any other person in the world who's a chef and a mycologist. Um, <laughs> so we're starting with a with a really unique Maybe. skill set. Uh, and then the second thing for us is brand. Uh, and then and then actually a third thing is supply chain so the sourcing of the um, of the of the base mushrooms and again we've got the 
right background and skills in those areas to, for those to be core competencies. The manufacturing is a big one. Um, sales and distribution is a big one. Um, but there are already people in the world who are very good at those things. We can leverage their, their skill sets for our business to be good. And yeah, to your point around product quality and particularly in food, food safety, you're making sure we're working with really sophisticated manufacturers who are who are already outstanding in those areas. I guess as a sort of a mushroom company, what do you really need to get right as you go from farm to plate? Getting the value proposition right for the customer and, and, and for the customer that you're going to scale into. So for Shoes of Prey, we did really, really well in this niche of women who are creative and passionate about designing their own shoes. That niche was small um, and we saw this opportunity and all our market research said the mass market customer um, wanted to design her own shoes as well. So we went out and scaled into, into that segment. But the value proposition ultimately just didn't work for that mass market consumer. She, she didn't want to design her own shoes and, and there's a yeah, whole bunch of reasons for that. Yeah, one of the things that kind of keeps me up at night with Fable is making sure, you know, the equivalent niche, starting niche for us is... Uh, vegans and vegetarians who clearly do want to reduce their meat consumption. And the good thing is in this category, that's, that is a reasonably big niche. It's 11% of the population are either vegan or vegetarian in Australia, and it's similar in the, in the US and the UK. But the, the real opportunity, and particularly for our mission of wanting to help end industrial animal agriculture, um, the opportunity is in the mass market consumer. The big thing for us is most a lot of people in Australia think they don't like mushrooms. So um, we've got to make sure that that we're delivering a product that has the taste and texture of meat, um, not mushrooms. You once reflected on your journey with Shoes of Prey that an alternative learning you will take away is to pick a business that doesn't require changing consumer behavior. (laughs) Can you touch on um, whether there needs to be a changing consumer behavior here? How do you expand beyond the vegetarian market? What are some of the key levers that you're looking at to address? I mean, so our goal is to make that change. There is a change. Like people are used to buying meat from animals. We're encouraging them to buy, we want them to buy meat from made from mushrooms and plants. Um, but we want to make that change uh, in behavior as small as possible. So we want to, in every step of the way, replicate um, the things people love uh, and the things people are used to about buying and eating animal meat. So that's everything from the, you know, the taste and texture of the product, the price of the product, um, the, where it's available. So um, it's great in Australia, the supermarkets are merchandising the meat alternatives uh, in, in their own bay, but in the meat section of the supermarket, that's where that customer is used to shopping for those products. The packaging, we want to make the packaging so, you know, it's similar to how people are used to buying uh, meat products. I mean, food service, um, you know, we want the our products to be available in uh, restaurants and cafes um, so people can get Fable burgers or Fable lasagnas or Fable curries in, in all sorts of different places, the same they would animal meat. So having that, that convenience and having the product available um, in, in the same places that animal meats are is important. A big thing for food and for meat too is like the cooking experience and the process so making that as making it as easy as possible for people to convert their existing recipes to using fable so you know everyone's probably got a good kind of bolognese recipe or a good curry that they like making at home so for all of those people who do we want to make sure that with our product it's just easy to switch um, a fable product in uh, in place of that uh, meat product that you're used to using the team obviously made a decision to go through distribution partners instead of, I guess, direct to consumer. Why and, and how did you approach that problem? And, and I guess I'd also love to extend that into how did you even set up a conversation with someone like Woolies and 
are there any sort of lessons that we can draw away from that experience? I reached out to both Coles and Woolies um, actually pretty early on in the life of developing Fable. So early 2019, I kind of managed to get introductions into the buyers of, uh, of Coles and Woolies, just kind of hustling through my network to, to get those introductions. You know, I, I don't come from a food background, so I didn't have those existing relationships, but, but managed to get introductions. Those buyers were willing to have a conversation, um, mainly because the category is just so hot at the moment. It's, it's like a, this change, there is a cha- changing consumer behavior, you know, documentaries like Game Changers, mm. Dominion, other things that are coming out that are convincing people to reduce their meat consumption. That's flowing through, you know, chefs and restaurateurs are seeing increased demand for plant-based products um, and the supermarkets are seeing huge demand for for these products. So I started talking to Coles and Woolies from early 2019 um, and getting their input and feedback on the market. What are they looking for? How are they seeing the market evolving? So that was kind of part of our my market research process. Uh, and then also that helped me build the relationships with those buyers so that when it came time to launching a product, you know, it was already kind of three quarters sold in. The big piece left, actually, well, it's probably a quarter sold in. The big piece mm. is how the product actually tastes and, uh, and the price point. Just launched in Woolworths last week um, into 600 Woolworths stores across wow. Australia. And, yeah, that's kind of six months after our initial product launch um, which is pretty quick for a food company. Um, you know, normally it would take sort of two to two to three years at least to you know building up through independent supermarkets. You know, normally over two or three years you build up a strong kind of following and and base of consumers um, who you can then drive into all these because you've got to so our sales targets. Um, you know, we've got to be selling uh, six or seven units per store per week to to stay ranged in Woolworths. That's the kind of objectives in a, in a, in our category and, and actually in a lot of food categories. So we're in 600 Woolworths stores, so we're going to sell 4,200 units per week to um, to not get deranged. Um, so, so that's a little bit daunting when you're, yeah, yeah it's it's all all well and good getting ranged, but uh, but staying ranged is the big challenge. So, Mason, please go out and uh, buy your <laughs> your one unit per store per week <laughs> of for the sure. 4,200 that we're going to sell every week. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Can you uh, unpack product development at Fable? Yeah, I guess probably the starting point is the kind of market research and understanding what the consumer wants. So being vegetarian myself, I'm the consumer. um, And that's actually been a a big change for me compared with Shoes of Prey. Whereas, yeah, I went vegetarian four and a half years ago. I'm not vegan, but I've reduced my egg and milk consumption. So I'm kind of a a dairy and egg flexitarian in a sense. Um, So I also kind of understand the logic there of, you know, I want to reduce my egg and dairy consumption, but find it difficult. My headspace is kind of the same as the consumer's headspace in the category. So that's a a helpful starting point. The other great thing about this category is there's existing products on the market. So, um, you know, you guys are invested in Sunfed who are in in Coles and Woolies. Um, There's Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods um, out of the U.S., um, and, and there's a whole bay of these products in Coles and Woolies now. And so I spent a lot of time uh, literally just standing at that bay, watching how consumers shopped the category, like watching what products they picked up, turning the packet around, put that one back on the shelf, picked up another one, put that in their basket, and then I'd creepily go up to, the, to them and ask them afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> why did you not buy that one? Why did you buy this one? And out of that uh, creepy research, I sort of came to a couple of conclusions and, and insights that have that also aligned with my own behavior um, that sort of led us down the, the product development path that we've gone down. So I'll describe it for me personally first as a consumer. So I'm a pretty healthy eater. Um, I shop at my local farmer's markets, um, do a lot of my own cooking, 
bake my own sourdough, brew my own kombucha. I try to eat a pretty minimally processed whole food based diet. Um, And so I wanted personally a meat alternative that was yeah very kind of whole food based minimally processed that was yeah going to be really good for me and and for my three and a half and one and a half year olds in particular that was a big thing that i heard from consumers too it's like a lot of the feedback was oh you know this this product's got a long ingredient list it's got some artificial ingredients that i don't know what they are um or you know it's looks like it's quite processed. How do they even make it look like this? I don't really understand the product. Out of 53 customers that I interviewed in Coles and Woolies over a couple of weeks, um, 23 made some comment around wanting something healthier, more natural, minimally processed. So that was kind of a base starting point. Um, so most meat alternatives are made using textured vegetable protein, which it's not, it's, it's, a, it's actually a very healthy product. But on the scale of processing from, if you take a banana at one end of the scale to an Oreo at the other end of the scale, textured vegetable protein kind of sits somewhere in the middle. There's, there's a bit of processing that happens to, to produce it. My sort of first, that was the kind of first main insight and thought process of, okay, well, if I want to develop a meat alternative that's less processed, how can we use something? How could that be done using a base ingredient that's not textured vegetable protein? Um, and yeah, not having a food background myself, I went out and talked to a whole bunch of people in the food industry, um, chefs and food manufacturers and food scientists and um, a few people put me onto the idea of exploring mushrooms as a base ingredient. Um, mushrooms obviously very healthy. Um, they've got a lot of those natural umami meaty flavors in them. Then we kind of took that inside of wanting to use a mushroom based mushroom base to develop a meat alternative and uh, and Jim got to work. Earlier you mentioned that you were in Woolies after six months. Most food companies take two to three years was there anything in particular that enabled you to, to move so quickly? Meat alternatives at the moment make up less than 1% of uh, meat consumed in Australia. Um, in dairy, uh, dairy alternatives are 13% of the dairy market. So already you can see there's headroom for meat to grow to 13%. And then, yeah, our vision is that you make the taste and texture better than meat and the price lower than meat. It should be like 80, 90, plant-based meat should be 80 or 90% of the market in, in yeah, maybe at 20 years time don't quite know what that time frame is going to look like uh there's that as a starting point and then there's all the, the consumer trends pushing in that direction so people wanting to reduce their meat consumption and that's led to a once in a generation uh growth for a new category i'm obviously biased but i do it, it like it is genuinely a very good tasting taste and texture product um our launch partner was heston blumenthal he's using it in his restaurants in the uk we did our launch event at dinner by heston in melbourne so i got one of the best chefs in the world u- using the product um we sort of developed it with chefs in mind uh and getting feedback from chefs along the way through the development process we kind of started heston first tried the product halfway through 2019 and uh, while we're still in the development phase um, so we've really focused on making sure that the product has an amazing taste and texture. We're using mushrooms and we've gone, we've gone and replicated a completely different type of meat. Um, so Jim grew up in Texas eating all those kind of slow cooked, you know, delicious oh, beef, awesome. brisket, pulled pork, uh, braised mm-hmm. beef. Um, and so we figured, well, let's go. Jim, Jim loves those foods. That's, that's particularly where his chefing skills are. The product that we've launched into Woolworths is a, um, a fable we call it plant-based braised beef. Anywhere where we, you would use a braised beef or even like a slow-cooked lamb or something else uh, similar, um, you could use you can use Fable. After everything at Choose a Prey, what was it like raising again, starting again? I mean, I, I yeah, I, I had that six-month break in Denmark and I kind of really needed that to sort of reset my mind. I probably 
you know, almost had some kind of mild version of PTSD after the sort of craziness of the last uh, 12, 24 months of Shoes of Prey. Um, and I actually didn't want to go and start another business. I think like my, my confidence was down. Uh, I just wasn't sure that I could actually handle that. So my thought was to come back to Australia and go and work for someone else. And, um, you know, I, I was passionate about the alternative protein space. I wanted to go and work in that space. So I talked to every company in Australia that was working on alternative proteins and um, they were all just all brand new startups uh, and any big corporates doing it, it was just a tiny sort of experimental division in, in what they were doing. So there were literally no jobs. So I kind of had the choice then of, you know, do I go back and get a, you know, I worked at Google prior to, do, prior, prior to doing Shoes of Prey, do I go back and get a job at Google or somewhere like that? And so I actually started, I did a few interviews with recruiters in companies outside the alternative protein space. And um, yeah, I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Like I, I just physically, yeah, just felt like that. I was just going to be bored doing that. But on the, on the flip side, yeah, I wanted to go in the alternative protein space. There's no jobs. So I had the thought, like, could I go start a business in the space? And that literally, I literally felt physically ill thinking about starting another business as well. So I had these like two options in front of me that neither felt good at all. So I managed to convince myself, all right, I'll go, I'll come back to Australia. I'll start, I'll start exploring starting a business in the alternate protein space. And um, I'll see where that goes. In doing that, I'll meet everybody who I haven't met yet in the space in Australia. And if a job comes up, then I can kind of make a call. Do I take that job or do I keep going on my own? So, you know, I had lots of really good conversations with um, actually with people at Blackbird. So yeah, I could see that there was lots of interest from every angle in this category. I mean, it was, it was growing really well. And so, yeah, started to, started to put together the sort of early pieces of fable. And so, yeah, just over the kind of first six months of 2019, uh, yeah, the business kind of came together, been having all these conversations with people. We, we started work developing the product. The product was looking really good. Um, and then sort of come October, um, yeah, we basically had a product. Um, Marley Spoon put in sort of the, we had Heston using it in his restaurants. Then Marley Spoon put in the first scaled order. Um, and it was an order for $100,000 worth of product. Um, and we needed the cash to fund that. So um, I'd been having all the conversations with Blackbird and Grok and others. And so went back to them and said, hey, we've got this big order. Um, what do you think would, would, you know, I think we need to raise a round of funding. Are you guys interested? For me personally, um, just really deeply moving that um, Blackbird and Grok, who had invested in Shoes of Prey uh, and, yeah, had lost their money. And then they came back and led the... Uh, led the round for fable um yeah oh just uh just kind of yeah satisfaction and and uh boost to my self-confidence um that that they would do that and and back me again so yeah really thankful and then we had some other good food industry people come in on the round too and blackbird and grok had through the whole sort of downward sort of end of shoes of prey had been amazing like i remember calling um rick baker and calling mark Cannon brooks and explaining like this is you know this is this is not going well we think we're gonna to have to shut the company down and literally the first question out of both of their mouths was uh, you know how are you and the team doing are you, are you guys okay you know it wasn't like what the hell's going to happen to our money just not even a, not even that question just was never even asked like um it was yeah just support for um myself and jody and and the team um and so I, I, you know, I knew that they were 
great people, but there's obviously a difference between, uh, you know, saying, saying and doing nice things through the downward cycle of a company and then backing a, a founder again who's, who's lost you money the first time around. So I genuinely didn't know whether Rick and, and Mike and Nick and everyone like said really good positive things to me, but there's a difference between saying it and putting your money where your mouth is. And so just, to, just yeah, I mean, I, I, talking about it, answering your question before, I was, I was almost getting a bit emotional, um, just really deeply, personally, um, a relief, uh, uh, satisfying and thankful um, for them, uh, yeah, having that belief to, to back something that I was doing again. I don't even know how to respond. <laughs> it's quite an amazing journey and I think everyone is so thrilled that uh, you're, you're back at it for round two. Yeah, and thanks for having me for round two. You're a legend. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks right. so much for having me, Mason. Really I good chatting to you. Genuinely can't wait to, to go to Bullies after this. And <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Bye up. <laughs> Now it's time to listen to Rick Baker, the investor who's back their journey. So Shoes of Prey was a huge part of Blackbird's journey. Do you want to touch on how you first met Michael? Yeah, so uh, Shoes of Prey really was this blueprint for Blackbird coming together. So I'd met Nikki, uh, who is co-founder at Blackbird and now I'm partner in crime here at uh, Blackbird. Uh, just sort of around the startup traps in um, around Sydney and uh, we, he introduced me to Michael, Mike and Jody, three founders of Shoes of Prey, uh, back before we'd even started talking about Blackbird. And in the end, we came together um, to, to lead that investment, uh, myself and uh, Bill Barty, who was also one of the uh, original co-founders of Blackbird, and, uh, and Mike Cannon-Brooks. And we led the, the first round for Shoes of Prey. And uh, I think at that time we were just super impressed with the uh, amount of traction that these three founders had got with very little capital. They'd bootstrapped it. They'd built this global business selling shoes all over the world in this really um, unique and new and innovative way. Uh, and we were really, really excited about that. So um, I've been uh, following Michael's journey ever since. So now it's the second time that you've backed Michael and his journey. Um, what do you love about Michael and why have you been drawn back twice? It starts with really with Shoes of Prey. Shoes of Prey was this great ambition and uh, to sell customized shoes built one at a time at scale uh, to women all over the world. And it was this fantastic ambition which they very nearly pulled off. I saw Michael solve so many problems in in his time at Shoes of Prey. In the beginning, I saw him solve a lot of them himself as a really scrappy founder when the team was really small and it was literally the three founders doing everything. Uh, and then towards the, the later stages of Shoes of Prey when they'd built a, a pretty big team, I saw him uh, as one of the key leaders in that team and sort of implementing the, the supply chain through China uh, and the, the sales and marketing, the, the much scaled up sales, sales and marketing effort that, that they did at Choose a Prey. One of the things that, you know, having done that and been on that journey with him, uh, I feel really confident that he is the sort of person that can deliver on the ambition for Fable. One of the risks of Fable is that um, there's a niche market with, with vegans who, who eat plant-based proteins as it stands. And the question is, will it expand beyond that market? In a, uh, a blog Michael wrote, he reflected, an alternative learning you'll take away is to pick a business that doesn't require changing consumer behavior. 
where do you sit on uh, this part of alternative meat? Um, and are you trying to change consumer behavior alongside Michael and the team at Fable? So um, I guess I start by saying that, that we all eat. So that's a good, <laughs> that's a good start to this, uh, to this thesis. Um, Look, we, we at Blackbird have formed this thesis about alternative protein. And in the medium term, we are seeing a, a, a real um, groundswell of enthusiasm for introducing more plant-based um, protein into, into our diets. Um, we've seen it as, as the big movement that, you know, I guess um, is probably bigger in the US, but is starting to emerge in Australia of meat-free Mondays. Uh, we're starting to see people who don't call themselves vegans or vegetarians start to eat um, plant-based protein. Uh, I've certainly started to, to eat it quite a lot in, in our family, uh, and we've, we've all been meat eaters and continue to be meat eaters, um, but really enjoying these, these alternative uh, food products. So I think, unlike Shoes of Prey, where we were really sort of trying to innovate this new category of, of custom shoes, what's happening with Fable and with... with um, alternative meat products is that, that we're really jumping on a wave that's that's already starting to break. Product and product roadmaps are always a massive part of our investment theses. Do you see, in essence, what do you see that's defensible about Fable and their product? It's a really great product built on on mushroom and, and fungi um, uh, products. And we've spoken about Michael, but I think it's also important to speak about Chris and Jim, mm. his co-founders, who really so are... Funny. You know, mushroom men, right? They they are really passionate and have spent years um, learning about the properties of mushrooms and, and other um, fungus, um, growing them and learning how to grow them at commercial scale, and then cooking and, and producing food from them. And so to have those two in combination with you know Michael, who we know so well. Uh, is is just a really great um, founding team, and, and it's got exactly the characteristics that we're looking for when we invest. Um, so, look, their their um, their competitive moat is built around two things. The first is that there is some really cool IP in the that what they're doing um, with the mushrooms just to create their first product. The ability to take the shiitake mushroom and the stalk and turn that into a ragu-based sort of pulled pork textured product um, is actually quite difficult to do at scale. Um, it's, it's quite easy to do if you want to do it at small scale in a sort of hand, um, you know, in by hand fashion, but it's actually really hard to do it at scale. And these guys have developed IP that allows them to do it at scale. And that's what's special about the first product and they've managed to also make it taste really good. So we, tried we know that, yeah, I've tried it a number of times and it's great. Have um, you brought it from Woolies yet? I have bought it from Harris Farm. Yeah. When it first came out, we went searching for it. It had actually sold out on the shelves, oh, which wow. we thought I'd, uh, I text Michael, texted Michael at the time and we, we didn't know whether this was a good or a bad thing. We figured that it was good that it had been selling well, but uh, they did have some out the back, which we managed to get and we cooked it at home. Um, we had it, we have had it both with pasta um, and in a salad and it's been great. Um, it's a really, really great tasting product and to be able to, to, to refine that process and get the taste and texture that we need, is there's a lot of IP in that. Uh, and they will continue to develop great IP um, as they develop their new products. And again, 
having um, the expertise that they have in the team around um, you know around mushrooms is is really important to that but in the long term it's really going to be brand and so brand will be super important and you know what is brand in the sense of food um, you know it starts with trust um, you know real strong trust that their products are consistent um, high quality um, taste great uh, and that's what they're going to have to build over the next little while. I think they're, they're in a great position. They have a great foundation to do that, um, and they're, they're, they're going to have to really work hard at that. We often ask ourselves in the investment process, um, what needs to go right for a company to return the fund? In the context of our investment process, what is return of the fund, and um, what needs to go right for Fable? You've obviously touched on a few things, um, short to medium, long, long term. I don't know if you want to unpack that further either. Return the fund, um, so we raise discrete funds, so pools of capital from investors and uh, a lot of the money in Australia and in our funds come from superannuation funds. Uh, and what we're looking for is any company that we invest in in those, in those funds, we want to see the opportunity to return the whole fund from our investment in just that one company. And we'll invest in 20 to 25 companies in the whole portfolio from that pool of capital. And we want to see the opportunity to, to return that whole fund, which is obviously a, a tremendous result, um, given that it will, it will be you know, about um, 1 20th to 1 10th of the, of the capital. For that to go, we, we know that that's not going to happen uh, in all the cases. And at Blackbird, we have this home run strategy in that we, we really hope for one or two or three of, of the companies in our 20 company portfolio to do really well, four or five of them to do well and the rest will probably hopefully make our money back or, or probably lose quite a bit of money on each of those investments but the winners will far outweigh the the, the losses and so um, we are looking for every company to be able to uh, return the whole fund that whole pool of capital that it comes out of um, for these guys key to that will be well firstly proving out that this first product sells really well uh, and starting to build that strong brand around Fable. It'll then be being able to build the commercial relationships that they need to with food distributors, um, particularly the supermarkets. As we know, there are not many supermarkets in Australia, so it'll be building out strong relationships with those, uh, those key retailers. And then for Fable, I think it's also really building that strong word of mouth. And one of the ways that, that they set out to do this is through great chefs and, and restaurants and getting themselves on the menus of really good restaurants. And that means that people get to go and try the product, um, hopefully love it, tell their friends about it and buy it um, at, at a retail level as well. So that's within Australia. I think to do really well and to return our fund, they need to start um, really being successful in other parts of the world. Um, and I think we'll see where how that starts to play out. Um, I think Asia will be a really strong opportunity for them. Uh, there's obviously quite a lot of competition in the US. Um, coming from some well-established players. I think Fable has a, a nice differentiation to those players, but they'll still have, there's a lot of noise in that market. One of the beauties of the Asian markets is that they eat a lot of fungus. So I think we'll need to see that happen. We'll see a multi-product strategy, and there's a real potential to, to build a, a business that produces you know, multi-hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue a year and is worth uh, billions of dollars. And 
If they do that, they'll return our fund. When you first heard Michael's pitch, what did you like about it? What stood out to you? What do you remember? Michael obviously came to us as a as a um, very warm uh, <laughs> introduction person we knew very well. Uh, and so we were watching to uh, see what his next business would be. Um, so that obviously helps. And you know, we've said a lot of times that having a warm introduction to a VC means a lot. Um, I think what's really important in these early pitches is the ability to very clearly articulate the mission that you're on and the vision that you're, you're trying to, the, the world you're trying to create. And it's, it's how your product um, comes together. It's what the product will be. And then it's how the product kind of fits within the construct of, of the world. And what we saw with Michael was a, a really strong, I guess, articulation back to us about why alternative protein and why plant-based protein is so important. Um, a really strong product. He had his first uh, product, the, the pulled pork product, um, at prototype stage. He had his first orders um, for the product and we were able to try it. Uh, it was great, uh, helped a lot. Uh, we have now have a saying that at Blackbird, which is taste the cheese, which <laughs> sounds, uh, sounds a bit facetious, but, but comes about, you know, re- really articulates the fact that we want to try the product and we want to love the product ourselves. And that's not only about a food product, but, but also applies to software products and hardware products. Um, we, we are very product focused here. So we love that he had a very strong view about what his first product would be and then this product roadmap going forward. So the ability to really articulate all of that in a clear manner, uh, to bring together the team, uh, the fact that these three founders had found each other, come together, started working. Uh, they were fairly um, new in their relationship, but had already uh, managed to sort of create the, the beginnings of the business together together. Um, were all really positive things. Was there anything mid-pitch where you were like, these are the questions that I need answered? Uh, You mentioned, obviously, taste the cheese as an important important. element (laughs) of um, at least getting into their product and and tasting the braised beef. Um, What were the sort of outstanding questions that in your mind needed to be answered? Well, one of them is definitely supply chain and how to produce this at scale. Uh, It's... One thing to be able to produce a a prototype run of this food, but as soon as you start getting into supermarkets, uh, they very quickly want you to scale up. So understanding that supply chain was really important to us. Um, And then I think the other was understanding Michael's view for the brand. And I think a lot of the branding, you know, comes from from um, Michael's knowledge and the things he's done in done in the past. Uh, really getting into what were the foundations of that brand, um, you know, not just the logo, but but the thinking behind it, the the values that the brand was going to portray, uh, was another big thing for us. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. And now it's time for the mushroom master to talk about his background and also the best ways to cook fable. Here's Jim. So you've been a chef and in mushroom science for 12 years? Well, no. Okay. So I've been a mushroom scientist for the last 12 years in Australia. Prior oh, wow. to that, a couple of years um, getting into it in California. Yeah. And then prior to that, about 12 years in 
in fine dining and cooking and, you know, becoming a chef. And during that period of time is whenever I spent uh, full time at university, most of those years doing chemical engineering degree. And then, you know, the kind of middle point is California where I stopped doing all the chefing and the degree work, went out, got a job in mushrooms and being in the North Bay area of California, um, mushrooms everywhere. I kind of fell in love, not just as a job, but like going out on the weekend and turning it into a hobby, growing them, finding them, naming them, seeing what they do. Mm. Then coming to Australia, I decided I was just going to do that as business. And I finished my agricultural science degree. Having all that chemical engineering background, I swapped over to agricultural science whenever I got here. And uh, yeah, graduated 2009 University of Melbourne. And uh, yeah, ever since I've been in the mushroom business, either as a farmer, a consultant, a scientist, a, a grower, a a seller. I went into the market for five years and sold them. And yeah, for the last couple of years, I've been working on developing food out of them. And yeah, I guess you know all about our fable journey that we got started mid last year and has, yeah, launched the product in December. So can you run us through a quick recipe or, or perhaps like your go-to dish? Yeah. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm Texan. That's that's a thing where barbecue is my slow cooked meat background. But Fable, like I said, is slow cooked meat replicant. It's a slow cooked meat alternative, and therefore it does fit into all the different cultural styles of preparation that you can provide in a slow cooked meat. So it works for curries and stews and braises and Korean barbecue, Asian barbecue and American barbecue and spit roast and lamb, all that kind of stuff. Right? It it, it suits that at a, at, a, at a ground level. But all you got to do is like build your sauce on top of it or have a prepared sauce and it just turns whatever it just turns it into that dish. So for me, it's, it's the go-to is barbecue, but it just seems to be like everyone loves it as barbecue. So that is the go-to whenever I want to show it off real quickly and impress somebody fable out of the pack. Um, it's just small chunks of meat or small chunks of like meat, small mm -hmm. chunks of mushrooms that are like meat. Um, so in any case, if I were going to provide, provide it in any format, I'd put it in a pan and sort of caramelize the outside. That's like the first aspect of cooking a meat that everyone wants to do to get the theatrics of cooking a meat. So we can do that. You put it in the pan and get that caramelization. Now here is where if you have a prepared sauce, put it on top, cook it in. Within a couple of minutes, you're good to go. Like five minutes from beginning to end and you have that slow cooked meat that tastes like you've been cooking it for six or eight hours or something like that. Wow. So that's what I do with barbecue. But if you're going to do like a, you're going to build your own sauce, I would take caramelize the fable, but then take it out of the pan and then build a sauce because you don't need it to cook for a very long time. It's already cooked. It's already got that taste and texture. So you put it in, take it out, then build your sauce, onions, shallots, garlic, you know, uh, whatever you're going to do, tomatoes, turn it Ooh. into a ragu or, yep. or yeah, whatever. You're going to turn it into a curry, put your curry sauce in there now, and then you build your soup. And then at the very end, last couple of minutes, you put the fable back in, warm it through, and you don't need to cook it for those long hours. It, it's got all of it right there and, and everybody's happy. So with the barbecue one, sear it in the pan when it's got its color on it. You're going to put a little bit more color on it with something like an HP sauce or a Worcestershire sauce. That's not the barbecue sauce, but what that does is like gets that extra little crispy char on the outside that that's like akin to that roasted in over smoke, that kind of thing. Then after that sort of evaporates out of the pan, 
whatever your favorite barbecue is in on top of it. And as much as you want or as little as you want. So you can have like a dry sort of barbecue thing or like a really saturated the fable won't disappear. That's one good thing is like you buy 250 grams of fable, you're going to end up with 250 grams in the in dish. You know, if you mm. buy 250 grams of meat and you roast it for eight hours, you might have 160 grams of protein there. Sure. But yeah, it's 250 grams, 250 grams in the end. And yeah, you put that in 250 grams, you can have two very nice, thick, fat, barbecue sandwiches out of this right so just a roast or like toast off a brioche bun then you put your fable on top of that and then a bit of coleslaw whatever your slaw choice is so here are the two different avenues that i go and i don't know how much you know about barbecue in the states but there's like several different styles of barbecue i'm a texan style barbecue man that means i like my vinegary peppery like really hot punch in your mouth barbecue <laughs> sauce yeah. But then so with that, I would put, yeah, I would put a creamy <laughs> slaw on top of that. And then that's it. You uh, put your bun together and you eat that. But if you're like that Kansas city, that Kansas city style, lip smacky, sticky, sweet, mm, 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 succulent barbecue, then you put on like a, a tangy, like peppery slaw on top of that, put it in your bun, have that up. And I mean, it's just like you're balancing it out and it's so good. There's, there's, I've never given that to a meat eater who said they wouldn't eat it again or they didn't love it. I mean, it's all, all of it's been like, yes, I like that. That's not something that I would look past. I, w- I would definitely take that when that's offered to me. French technique, classical French technique, and this goes back to La Rusque astronomy, like 16th century where they wrote the book on it, literally wrote the book on how you treat everything that you do. Mushrooms never touch water before you put them in the pan. You start them with butter or olive oil or fat and you cook them slow and get it all the water cooked out and then you do something from there. But um, the technique, and, and this, this was a, before the extent of the cellular structure. They thought they were vegetables, so they treated them like vegetables. But they're not. The cellular structure is quite different, and they stand up to that hard cooking, and they stand up to being boiled. You can boil a mushroom for days, and it's not going to turn to mush. It just like it loses a certain amount of water. Mushrooms are 90% water. It loses a certain amount of water. And that's like what you would call the perfect level of cooking. So if you go straight into a pan with butter or oil, all the water from the mushroom is going to come out. And what it does is it keeps the temperature of the oil down Mm. at 100 C because 100 C is the boiling point of water. The oil wants to be at 180 or 200 or whatever. So there's a little fight in the pan for like the temperature that's right. And they always, what happens is as soon as the steam evacuates, the oil gets sucked right back up into where the water was. So you get like oil logged mushrooms and then you have to keep adding oil. Of course, you make delicious stuff that has a lot of oil in it. It's very tasty. But in this, you boil your mushrooms. You keep adding water as long as you want. And what I do is I add a small amount of water, let it boil out, add a small amount of water until like the very last mushroom is perfectly cooked because the first one is still perfectly cooked too. Once all that that water sort of like all the flavor comes out and concentrates out and that water evaporates off, then just like a tablespoon of oil for like a massive punnet of mushrooms, some shallots, garlic, salt, and it's different than you would have ever believed. All the flavor of the mushrooms is still there. It hasn't been bled off. It does, it's not covered up by having like all the fat injected up into there. All the fat stayed on the surface. And what it did was it then caramelized and browned up the sauce that reduced and the outside of the mushrooms. And it, uh-huh. and it makes mushrooms taste meatier than they've ever tasted before. People don't realize. They're like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's, that's just a mushroom? Yeah, well, that's just a mushroom. That's all it is. <laughs> Can you just describe the mushrooms that Fable is using? Yeah, so we have, to, we have to look at it from the, the textural approach. So mushroom cellular structure is different than plant cell structure. It's actually, 
it, it's exactly like plant cells, but it's got a different coating on the outside. Mushroom cells are more like human cells in that they digest their energy on the outside and then only absorb in the nutrients that they need. That's mm -hmm. what humans do in our stomach. We digest using enzymes in that and they only absorb like sugars. But plants, they create their energy from the sun, CO2. Um, but the, the real difference is that it has a chitin cell wall and plants have a cellulose cell wall. And the, that cellulose cell wall falls apart pretty easy. Whenever you apply heat or pressure, um, the chitin cell wall stands up pretty well through those sorts of things. So taking that into account, we know that we can, we can get the texture of meat as long as we choose the right type of mushroom. So we chose shiitake specifically because it has a long growing period. And long growing period leads to more like materially dense mushroom. So those fibers in shiitake really closely bound together and really robust. So, and, and it takes weeks for a shiitake to grow from pinhead to actual full grown mushroom. Yeah, absolutely. But there are other mushrooms like oyster mushrooms. They grow in like three weeks and that texture of those completely good for something different, but not to achieve the taste and texture of a slow cooked meat. That, that, that texture is almost more cottony and chewy because they grow really fast. So yeah, it was, it's really about choosing the right structure in the mushroom to get the right outcome. Thanks, Jim. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, no stress. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email, wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you subscribe, and if you like the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Go to your nearest Woolies or check out Harris Farm if you're in Australia. Check out some braised beef fable. Uh, I've had it. It's unprecedented, and you should definitely buy it. Uh, I'll leave the link in the show notes. Also, and finally, if you haven't already, make sure you sign up to Giants Weekly, a new online event series. Join us every Tuesday, 8 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time for 30 minutes Q&A from top tech leaders. Thank you so much for joining me and have a wonderful week.